Are you still taking the lithium? Lithium, Prozac. When's it gonna end? We're trying to give a jolt to your system. Give it a, a, a little kickstart. Why don't you kick me in the fucking head? What you're going through is very painful, I know that. You get stabbed in the ribs, that's painful. This shit, I don't feel nothing. Nothing. Dead. Empty. Like fucking King Midas in reverse here, everything I touch turns to shit. I'm not a husband to my wife. I'm not a father to my kids. I'm not a friend to my friends. I'm nothing. Hello and welcome to the fourth instalment of the Essence of Anarchy series. Last time, we delved deeply into the concept of consent, asking whether or not it is an innately good thing. As a way of testing this, we explored the consequences of abandoning consent and embracing more coercive means. In this episode, I'll take that thought experiment one step further, looking at the operating practices of an institution grounded in coercion, the Mafia. I'll then explore the greater implications of this for an anarchist society, and as the opening has given away, I'll be taking an example from the famous mob-based TV series, The Sopranos. A few years into the show, a particularly despicable gangster, called Feech Lamana, is released from jail and seeks to restart his mob career. One of the ways he does this is by helping out his nephew's gardening firm. Feech's approach consists of intimidating and beating up all the other gardeners in the area and thereby granting his nephews a de facto monopoly. All credit must be given to both the writers and actor Robert Loggia for bringing this character to life. Loggia gives an incredible portrayal of a delusional narcissist, incapable of empathy, making his living by preying on other human beings. Simply pointing out Feature's behaviour as nasty, however, is a little too easy. What I want to explore here are the economic implications of the enforced monopoly he sets up. Firstly, and most obviously, the other gardeners in the area suffer. They lose their income, which of course has knock-on effects for their families as well as the wider community. The customers also lose out. The whole point of an enforced monopoly is to keep prices high through restricting supply. Lamana's gardeners, as the firm is called, could have found work by dropping their prices to a level which was competitive with other firms. Feature's use of intimidation and violence was not about helping them find work, it was about keeping the price of that work artificially high. The customers also suffer, as the variation of services available is reduced. Different gardening firms may have specialised in different areas. Japanese-style gardens, or vegetable patches, for example. Whilst Lamanas do have to do some gardening work to remain employed, they are not under pressure to provide such a good service, as there is no competition for them. Enforced monopolies also reduce investment in capital equipment. Industries become more efficient over time because owners are effectively forced to invest their profits into new technology. I say effectively forced, 
as failing to do so means they will fall behind their competitors and will not be able to lower their prices. Gardeners, for example, who persist in using manual shears instead of electric trimmers will take much longer to complete a job and won't be able to lower their prices accordingly. This is probably the least obvious effect of coercion. I'm sure you could have thought of the previous examples for yourself. Ironically then, over time it is perhaps the most corrosive aspect. Now, inefficiency and higher prices in the gardening business probably does not signal the end of the world. But imagine if medicine operated as a monopoly. The effects of stagnating the development of new treatments would end the lives of millions, including those financially profiting from the scam. Beyond the financial aspects, there is also a negative feeling generated between the Marner's gardeners and those they expropriate. The community may turn a blind eye, but they know they are the victims of predacious behaviour. The Marner's gardeners do indeed financially benefit. They have all the work they want set at a higher price than they would otherwise get. However, even if we accept that crime does financially pay, the Sopranos was always brilliant at displaying its psychological and spiritual corrosiveness. As I've said, Feech was a narcissist, incapable of forming genuine connections with other human beings. He soon ends up back in jail as a consequence of only being able to relate to similar people, who quickly sell him out. The character who most brilliantly displays the corrosive effects of crime, however, is the star of the show, Tony Soprano. The Sopranos centres around the interactions Tony, a mob boss, has with his psychologist, Dr. Jennifer Melfi. The audio clip at the beginning is from a session where Tony is trying to figure out why his life has gone so wrong. In contrast to his out of a near of being the powerful mob boss, inwardly he feels empty. He recognises that he has none of the things that make life worth living family, friends, and human connection. As a person, he is nothing. There was another quote I considered using to open up the episode, in which Tony says, You know my feelings. Every day is a gift. It just... doesn't have to be a pair of socks. I actually found this one a little more amusing, but the King Midas in reverse suits our purposes best. Basing his life on coercion has given Tony the anti-Midas touch. Tragically, neither Tony nor Dr. Melfi are able to see this. Tony always blames his depression on his bad genes, ignoring what is staring him in the face. It is curious why Dr. Melfi is consistently unable to point out the obvious, but instead encourages Tony to talk about his mother and offers drugs to numb his pain. The commentary on the effects of living a violent life in The Sopranos is often subtle, expressed by what is absent. In the six years of the show, Tony is never really happy or at peace, until his ultimate murder in the final scene. So now we've looked at some of the economic implications of coercive monopolies, I'm going to suggest something. I'm going to suggest that many of the observations and criticisms I've made about the Mafia business model 
would also apply to most, if not all, nation states. Let's examine this. Taking everything we've covered so far, let's ask whether the typical nation state appears to operate on a consensual or coercive model. A consensual model means a person is free to withdraw their custom at any time. This is the main check anyone has against receiving a quality of service they are unhappy with. A coercive model means a person will ultimately be threatened with force if they stop paying the bills. Much like a mafia protection racket, people are clearly not free to withdraw their custom from the services the state provides. It could be countered that people can withdraw by simply leaving the country. This may sound extreme, but I suggest we look at things in terms of principle, not scale. A person may be bound to certain agreements if they live in an apartment block and can only become free from them by leaving. Perhaps this is fair. So does the same principle apply? The question really is, can states make a legitimate claim on the land which they legislate for? If we think back to part two, we discussed how legitimate ownership requires either a consensual exchange or someone acting on something previously unowned. I gave the example of Bob picking up his driftwood. Another example could be a farmer fencing off and planting an area of land to make it his field. By contrast, illegitimate ownership is when property is taken without consent or land is claimed that was never acted upon. Landing on a beach and declaring a whole island or even continent to be the property of some empire would be illegitimate. It is clear that most states fall into the latter category. They have not legitimately acquired the right to govern the land they lay claim to. Even if we go really far back in history, the origin of any such claim lies in conquest. At no point did the people who could be said to be the rightful owners of the land ever willingly cede it to a state. With that being the case, a state cannot demand a person leaves a whole country to avoid paying for its services. What about democracy? The will of the majority. Does this legitimise nation states? Democratic decisions are fine, just so long as everybody affected has previously agreed to be beholden to them. With nation states, as nobody ever signed up to the system, now or in history, then according to what I've laid out, the answer would be no. Does the intention make a difference? Mobsters use coercion with the intention of enriching themselves. People working for the nation-state, even if they are funded by coercive means, are often intending to be of service to others. Perhaps this does make some difference. Your average government worker may not suffer all the personally destructive consequences of a Tony Soprano. But as we saw in our experiment on prohibition, or Tom taking Bob's statue for public display, good intentions do not ameliorate the effects of coercion. Bad outcomes seem to be woven into coercion's very nature. If we were to conclude that the state is an organisation founded on coercive instead of consensual grounds, given what we've said about the consequences of coercion, 
would we not expect to see the same negative effects here? Should we not see Tony's Midas touch in reverse coming into play? Do we see that? That is what we'll be exploring over the next several episodes. I'll be taking some examples of services typically provided by the state and seeing if we can spot the corrosive effects of coercion acting within them. Prior to that, however, in the next episode, I'll take a detour to present what an alternative to a coercive government model might look like. For now, I'll leave you with the following questions to contemplate. Do you agree that coercion is both morally and economically corrosive? Do you think that most nation states operate on a coercive model comparable to the Mafia? If not, how do they differ? If so, how would you expect this to manifest in the services the state provides? Thanks for listening. I hope you tune in again next time.